as we continue our series, as we walk through this letter by Paul to the church in Colossae, the context of this letter is that there are those who are false teachers who have sought to infiltrate the church in Colossae, are spreading false doctrines and false teachings that are threatening to lead some Christians astray and certainly discouraging others. We come this morning to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This sends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Well, thank you for your endurance with me so far this morning. I, I covet your endurance again as I continue to try to communicate God's word for the rest of our time. This is a weird passage, isn't it? I mean, there's some weird stuff in here. Asceticism, worship of angels, visions. There's some interesting things going on in the church of Colossae. I'll describe it this way. I think this is what is going on with these false teachers is they are seeking to espouse in the church in Colossae a bootleg Christianity. You know bootleg material? We thought about it with prohibition. There was certain bootleg material that were made out in the the trees and the forests that people would would send around. When I was in Bosnia, uh, like many second and third world countries, when I was living there, you can go to the markets and you could get all sorts of bootleg movies and bootleg clothes. You know Lacoste? costs $125 for a Lacoste polo. In Bosnia, you can go to the market and you can get a Lacoste polo for $6. What a great deal. <laughs> but like any bootleg material, there was always something added. Like the logo was massive or too small or not there or a button was missing or like in Bosnia where they like their clothes really tight like many Europeans and I would still I would purchase the extra large Lacoste church shirt for $6 and I, it would come in this saran wrap so you couldn't you couldn't open it there it was an open market unless you wanted to strip down in 20 degree weather in Sarajevo and, and try on a shirt you had to wait till you got home and there aren't any returns with bootleg markets and so you go home and you try on the extra large shirt from Lacoste and it goes down to your belly button and you're going I don't think this is how it's supposed to look it's bootleg. There's something missing or there's something added to it. And this is what Paul is preaching against. This is a polemic. It's a big word. I had to look it up, actually. I thought I knew the understanding of it. And I, I was correct. Polemic is teaching or speaking against a particular teaching. And that's what Paul is doing this morning. So if I can beg your pardon this morning, this sermon will have somewhat of a negative sound to it. In part because 
the Apostle Paul is engaging in a negative approach here. He is addressing these negative teachings and kind of going and trying to undercut them. Now, this bootleg religion, this bootleg Christianity, I think we could describe it in a generic and general way as simply being bootleg. It's legalism. It is legalism going on here. Now, it is not legalism the way that often Christians think about um, in, in, a, in a very specific sense, which is people are tr- over, over tightly saying that you must obey the Old Testament in all these specific ways, and if you don't do so, you won't be saved. This is legalism in a more general way, which is simply this, where you're adding to the gospel of salvation, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, laws and requirements that are not there. That can be anything from things that are actually in the scriptures to things that are not in the scriptures. So it doesn't necessarily have to do with Old Testament religion. Now, Dan Doriani, who is a professor at Covenant College has, or Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, has given four descriptions, and I'm going to walk through this very briefly, of legalism. Not so much, well, not different descriptions, but simply different degrees of legalism. I'm going to start with the most difficult or the most um, damning of legalistic approaches. And the first is this, is that you see the law or law-keeping, whether it be Old Testament law, biblical law, or some other law, as the means to salvation, that is, that in order to get into salvation, in order to be justified and made right with God, you have to keep the law. That's one way. Now, most of us don't hold this. In fact, I don't think anybody in this room would say that. That if I just do enough good works, I will be saved. Some people hold to that creedally, but probably most people here wouldn't. But our problem is we hold to that functionally. That my salvation is found in functionally living in this way. A second way in which he describes legalism, or a second degree, is that good deeds... That while God's grace gets us saved, that good deeds, that keeping the law are what keep us in. That God has won us God's favor one time through the salvific work of Jesus, but we have to, by our good deeds, keep ourselves in. In other words, we are sanctified and we persevere by our performance. This is another way of talking about legalism. A third way is that we love the law so much that we create new laws. And not only do we create new laws, but we require all the people around us to follow those laws. This is obedience and holiness, a passion for obedience and holiness, but a legalistic approach to holiness. Fourth, the fourth degree, or the least, it's the least degree or the least pressing, but it is still a concern, is this, is that in our churches or in our life, we so accentuate obedience and law-keeping that we push out or we force out the gospel of grace. Where we may preach the gospel of grace, but it is separated from our holiness, or we so accentuate holiness in the life of a Christian that nobody hears you preaching about the gospel of grace. That the weight of the way you talk and the way in which you interact with people is hard. And you may creedally and doctrinally preach beautiful doctrines of grace. But what people experience from you and what people experience from your church community is this is a place that if you don't keep God's law, he's going to get you. These are all a problem. And understand this, and this is the seriousness of why we actually I have to walk through this text and take it seriously, is that legalism is sin. And in fact, this is the main problem that is going on in the church in Colossae. Legalism is false teaching. And it is one of the most divisive and subversive forms of false teaching because it has the appearance of wisdom. It has the appearance of goodness, but can destroy and wreck churches and wreck lives. 
Three descriptions I see in this passage of bootleg Christianity. We're going to look at the first two this morning, and then in two weeks we're going to come back and look at the third. The first two we deal with these kind of more esoteric versions of the bootleg Christianity. First, bootleg Christianity substitutes the shadow for the substance. Bootleg Christianity substitutes the shadow for the substance. Verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now here what Paul provides us is a significant, and for Jewish people, a significant paradigm shift in how we understand and read the Old Testament. What he's saying here is the Old Testament is not obsolete, but instead, as we understand the Old Testament through New Testament eyes, is it actually illuminates the purpose of the Old Testament for us. That its meaning and purpose of the Old Testament was to, was to be a signpost that points to the need for Jesus Christ. The dilemmas that are brought up in the Old Testament say that only Christ Jesus, the Messiah, can solve these dilemmas. The need to be perfect. Only Jesus Christ can solve that issue. All these ceremonial laws and how you sacrifice. Jesus will put an end to all of those sacrifices by being the perfect sacrifice. And by understanding the Old Testament through this lens, you actually begin to understand it correctly and rightly. Understanding it that Christ is the substance. He is what we want. That the Old Testament has, has, has performed nobly and wonderfully by pointing to us our need for Jesus and pointing to us the fact that Jesus is coming. But they are shadows. The fullness of what is all that is being pointed there is Christ. He came in body, not as a shadow. He came visible, not invisible. Christ came and he fulfilled the law. Christ is the answer to all of the dilemmas. Christ is the true and better version of all the heroes that we see in the Old Testament. Saw this from Tim Keller this week on his Facebook post, one of those quick 140 gospel presentations, and it was just beautiful when he was talking about Abel. And he said, Abel is the man whose blood cried out for justice, but Jesus was the true and better Abel whose blood cries out saying, we have justice. We have justice, and we are made right before the Father. Every hero of the Old Testament points both to the need of Jesus and that Jesus is better. Now, Paul mentions here that there are two shadows that these false teachers are saying that the Colossian church needs to go back to, that they need to hold to these things. And in fact, they're saying that we need to hold to these things maybe above and beyond the substance. Two shadows. Shadow one is this, food and drink. Food and drink. Most likely there is a Jewish flavor to this false teaching, although there may be some other pagan rules added to it. But it is certainly true that in the Old Testament, particularly in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, these are whole chapters with rules in the Old Testament of what you can and cannot eat, what you should and should not eat, and how you should eat. Now, that is an odd thing, isn't it? You ever read Leviticus and Deuteronomy? You probably don't, because when you're reading through the year, you get to February and March, and you're starting to get to these parts and the, the read through the year in the Bible, and this is where you stall out, right? This is the no man's land of the read through the year project. Uh, and, and, and it's in Leviticus that we see these incredible details. Why does God give his people a menu? I mean, really stringent menu. Well, when you think about it this way, every culture, every subculture in this world has its own menu, Right? Now, in, in America, we don't think of this so much because they're all melted here. But even, we still think about this in the way we describe our food. I go and eat Italian food and Mexican food and Chinese food. Every culture 
has its food. It's part of what distinguishes them and sets them apart. And that's actually, in many ways, what God may be doing with the people of Israel. It was a means. They were to be his special people set apart from the world. And that meant that what they ate, how they dressed, how they acted, how they did justice was all going to be different than those around them because they were God's people. It distinguished them as such. Now, there's a couple of reasons why he wanted them to be distinguished in these ways. Certainly, their food could have been healthier. Could have been healthier. Like not eating pork, right? We're not supposed to eat pork. Now it causes cancer too, right? Now, my family last night, because of this passage, we had pork. Just saying. We had some good pork. It was lovely. So it, but there could be a health issue. Second, there could be that culturally, a lot of these foods, like even pigs, were known to be as part of pagan sacrificial culture. And so it was associated with negative and nasty things. Or third, third sometimes eating these, pra- these practices, was the, they gave the strong appearance of cruelty. Such as one of the rules that God gives is you aren't to, when you kill and slaughter a, an, a small animal, an infant animal, that you don't cook it in its own mother's milk. You know Why? Because it has the appearance of sadisticness. That even is, we understand that God has given us animals and given us provision as a means for us, to provide for us. But in so doing, he actually has labeled and given animals to us to eat as we have dominion and dynasty over us, over them, that as a means of provision, there's actually a sacredness there. There is a value to them. And to treat them lightly, to treat them in almost sadistic, sort of abusive sort of ways is not correct. If you want to read more about this kind of idea, you can pick up Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is a farmer, theologian, poet. And he talks about this, that since post, post-industrial revolution, we have become so separated from the way our food is made that we have lost a sense of the sacredness of God's creation. Now listen, I am really thrilled not to have a cow hung up on a hook in my backyard. I'm thrilled by that. But he is actually making a good point here. And that they're actually, and so all for these three reasons, whether they're healthier or for because of cultic reasons or simply because it appears bad, God's people are not to take part in these kind of eatings, the way they, these, the way they eat in these ways or these type of foods because it set them apart. But in Acts 10, what we see when Jesus comes is that God has abolished and caused all foods clean. Now, why is that? Because there is now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We are now not defined and set apart in this world by what we eat, by our diet and our menu, so you can have bacon. Amen. Right? You can eat it because that's not what sets you apart. Now, listen to me. In the New Testament, there absolutely is a meal that sets you apart. But it is a much more basic menu. You ever been to a good restaurant? A good restaurant does not have a thousand things in the menu. They have like four. And in the menu that God has given us, it is not the cheesecake factory. There are two things on God's menu. Bread and wine. The body and the blood of Christ Jesus. He is the substance. There is a menu that we have been given, a menu, a meal that we have been given as brothers and sisters that sets us apart. That we say we gather and we, this is our substance. This is our source. This is our spiritual provision, God's communion that He has given us. All right, so that's one. Now, by the way, mind you, there are other, God has given us some other laws in the New Testament about how to eat, but they all have to do with His Lordship, right? Like gluttony is, that's off limits, right? You know why? Gluttony is where food is your idol. Drunkenness, that's off limits. You know why? 
Because it's where alcohol is your idol. 1 Corinthians 8, don't, sacrifice, don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. It's all now in connection to the lordship of Jesus Christ. All right. Festivals. The, se- the second shadow is this. Festivals and Sabbaths. There were, in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of commemorative days of remembrance and days of worship, right? There was the Passover, there was Feast of Booths, there were all kinds of Sabbaths. There were weekly Sabbaths and yearly Sabbaths, and there was a Sabbath every seven years, and there was a Sabbath every 49 years, and there was a Sabbath every 70 years. All kinds of big Sabbaths. Now, these days primarily were meant to remind Israelites these days of remembrance, these Sabbath days, these festivals and holidays and holy days were to, to remind the people of their history. Once again, it set the people of Israel apart. In some ways, right, Thanksgiving this week, we're going to celebrate a national holiday. And what are we celebrating? Well, if your kids are going to a kindergarten, perhaps one that's not quite as politically correct, you're, one of your children may have dressed up as a little Indian this week, Right? And what, what are we celebrating? That when Squanto and the Indians helped the pilgrims and they helped them learn how to, to garden here in New England and they made it through the winter and then they had a harvest and they celebrated. And that's what we look back to. In the same way, that's what Israel had. The Passover. It was a remembrance of God's salvation, what God was doing. The Feast of Booze was a remembrance of God's provision. The Sabbath was a remembrance of how God rested and enjoyed his creation. And what appears was going on here in Colossian, in the Colossian church is that these false teachers are coming in and saying, not only do you have to keep these old Jewish holidays and festivals and these Sabbaths, but they also probably were trying to apply all these very stringent Sabbath rules upon the people in the church. See, the Pharisees had created, there was a couple passages in the New Old Testament about how to keep the Sabbath. But they had applied and taken those, those rules, and they had created actually about 36 different sections of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And then from that, developed rules and rules and rules, so much so that they had things even like how many feet you could walk on the Sabbath day. Now, what they're doing here is they're actually violating the very heart of the Sabbath. That they're saying that the, the approach and the, and the position is this. That if you keep the Sabbath holy perfectly and you don't make any mistakes and you make sure you don't walk this many feet or do this many things with your animals and do this with the food, then you will be holy before God. It violates the very purpose of Sabbath. But now, in Christ Jesus, Jesus has now given us new holidays, new festivals of remembrance. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all those old holidays and all those old Sabbaths, such as the Passover, right? The Passover celebrated the fact that there was a lamb that was slain and his blood was wiped on the door and and through it the people escaped the wrath of God. By the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain, we are saved from the wrath of God. The day of atonement was celebrated in Leviticus 16. It celebrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of the day of atonement. That by his blood, he was the two goats. He was the one who took our shame and our guilt. The feast of booths represents the fact that God provided on a daily basis for his people. And even in Pentecost, very similarly. And now we celebrate on the day of Pentecost the spirit of God given to us, that he is our daily bread who provides for us. And because of that, God will never leave us or forsake us. So he has flipped these things on their head, and in fact with the Sabbath as well. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath because in him you can finally and fully rest. You could not be saved by all your Sabbath keeping, by all your law keeping, but Jesus, by fulfilling the law, 
He has welcomed and ushered you in through faith in him. Now you can rest. We sang it this morning. On the cross, he said, it is finished. There's nothing left for you to do. You can rest in the work of Christ Jesus. And in fact, even for us strict Sabbatarians, you will never, ever truly keep the Sabbath until you have first rested in Christ's work for you. If you add rule after rule after rule of what it looks like to keep the Sabbath holy, you are actually violating the very heart of the Sabbath. If you make it a burden for God's people to carry, then you're violating the Sabbath. There's two principles that come down in regards to Sabbath and throughout the scriptures. First is this. Principle one is it's the six, work six days and rest on one because that's what God did in creation. And on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested, but in his rest, he enjoyed creation. Some of the Sabbatarian laws would have us not even enjoy creation. In fact, the old Puritans, pretty much what they would do, they'd line their kids up on a wall, and they would stick them in a chair, and they would say, you're going to read your Bible for the next 12 hours. That's how you keep the Sabbath in some people's minds. But then there's another part of the Sabbath. The second principle is this. is not only is, Jesus the, is God resting on the seventh day as the creator, but then he is also resting as the recreator the one who has restored us to God. And so we rest, and so that's what we do on Sundays is we enjoy God's creation. We worship him for all that he has done, and we come and we enjoy God's recreation by coming and celebrating together as his people what is now called the Lord's Day, to gather together as the community and the family of God to celebrate his atoning work on our behalf. And we together say as a community, it is finished. That's what we do on Sundays. That's celebrating the Sabbath. We celebrate the substance, not simply the shadows. The substance of what God has done. Now, this doesn't mean that it is not wise to rest and keep a Sabbath. I think we should still keep a Sabbath. Because of the principle God gives us in creation, and because of the principle he gives us even in salvation, that we are to rest. And in so doing, we are functioning countercultural. We'll talk about this in a second, how we're going to apply this. But it is countercultural to take a day off now. Would you rest? Jesus says, I come to, and he says to us, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Entering into Christ Jesus and trusting him and him alone leads you into permanent and real rest. All right, what's the flaw in this bootleg Christianity? Very simply, it, it, it either, it puts the shadow as equal to or greater than the substance. Boulet Christianity gives inordinate focus and fixation on the shadows to such a degree that perhaps you even lose your focus on the substance. Let me give you an illustration of this perhaps in, in history that we can lose a sense of the greater thing that's come. In 1903, Henry Ford had his lawyer go to a bank and he wanted, to give him a, he wanted a bank to give him a loan in order to create an assembly line to create cars. And the banker told the lawyer that I'm not going to give you this loan Because the car is nothing but a fad. And soon we will head back to the horse and the buggy. I'm pretty sure that it's the horse that's been put out to pasture, not the car. It is silliness to go back to the things that were forerunners. To not take advantage of the substance, the greater things that God has provided. Now you may ask yourself, now are these things really going on in our churches today? Let me just give a number of examples here this morning. And I'm not wanting to be negative. I'm going to name some names and some different church denominations. But just, 
Not to call them out and be nasty, but simply to show you that these things are alive and well. The same principles and thought processes and how we are still so susceptible to this thinking. First, are there foods and drink within the Christian world that we are told that we can't eat or take part in? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) A good Christian doesn't drink blank. I'll leave that right there. We're going to come back to that in two weeks when we come down to moralism and the third bootleg aspect of Christianity. Second, are there places where religious symbols, where the signs and the shadows have overcome and overtaken the substance? Yeah. There are numerous denominations and numerous churches where they have made water baptism the sign of our spiritual baptism. They have made water baptism a requirement for salvation. There's one particular denomination called the Church of Christ. Now, don't get confused. There's two different Church of Christ denominations. I don't know. There's like 3,000 Presbyterian denominations, so who are we to throw stones? But anyways, there's two Church of Christ denominations. One of them is very evangelical, but one of them is quite cult-like. And what they say is this, is they say, not only do you have to be, have physical water baptism in order to be saved, but you, we won't even accept any of the baptism you received in other churches. You have to be baptized in one of our churches. This is putting the sign over the substance. Saying this, that this gift that God has given us, this physical representation that reminds us of what is going on inside of us internally, and putting that ahead. Another example would be symbolism in worship forms. Some of you may have grown up in a Catholic church or maybe in the Church of England, like Anglican or Episcopal churches. And what you may find there in those churches is that you go to a worship service and you have no clue what is going on. Now, actually, when you begin to understand the liturgy, the form of their worship, and understand the symbolism, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. I love liturgy. I love the symbols. They mean things when they're crossing themselves. They mean things when they have candles and when they're wearing certain robes. But the problem becomes when they say, in order to have a true worship experience, a right worship experience, you've got to do this, 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 and this. It becomes too esoteric. And they end up, and there's so many signs, they actually lose the substance. Now, you might say, now, that's not our problem. That's not our problem. But in more lowbrow, or let's say southern churches, us good Protestants perhaps, the issue in the past has been maybe what we wear to church. The sign over the substance. That in order to show that you revere God, you need to wear a suit and a tie. Or now, now it's if you truly understand the grace you have in Jesus Christ, you will wear shorts and t-shirt. And anybody who wears a suit, they just don't get the gospel. But both of these are actually doing and applying the same exact principle. Where it is wearing something nice as, an appear, as a means of reverence, that's lovely. But to make it a law unto it itself and say that those who are not dressing like you when they come to church are violating something is silliness. What is the substance? I talk about this when we do the call to worship. I try to pound this away. What do you dress yourself in when you come to worship? Is it a suit? Is it jeans? Skinny jeans or bootleg jeans? Whatever it may be. No, you you dress yourself in the righteousness of Christ, the robe of Christ's blood that has cleansed you. That's how you come to worship appropriately. That is the substance. A third illustration, certain historic church traditions, it is required that all peoples will participate in particular church calendar year traditions, such as Lent or Ash Wednesday or Advent or Easter, and they look down upon Christians who don't keep these yearly calendars and practices 
In fact, this was a particular issue at a post-Reformation that the church, during the Church of England that many uh, reformers in Protestants were having a difficulty with the Church of England because they were requiring that they use a certain way of doing worship and follow a certain calendar year in their worship and were not giving the churches freedom in their worship. Now, you may say, we don't have this particular problem. We don't follow the church calendar year in any kind of strict particular way. But let me, let me bring two particular examples that, we, that have been uh, are usually apropos at this time of the year. Let me use one from two weeks ago. The Starbucks cup controversy. Now, I am very glad that this is eliminated from my Facebook page and we moved on to more greater debates like what to do with refugees. But for the three, three people in America who are really upset that Starbucks removed any signs of holiday and paraphernalia or Christmas stuff from their cups, they were actually doing the exact same thing. They were saying that this company, because they will not abide by this church calendar year and the certain things of what it looks like to celebrate this particular holiday that Christians have, they, because they violate that, we hate them. Now, you may not have participated because you were one of those three people that were upset by this. But the other, another way in which we get upset by this is every year in the news, there is something about these sweet, cute little plastic nativity scenes on city halls and how we are so outraged that these city halls will not have the nativity scenes on their property any longer. Once again, what we are doing is we are applying the same principle. It is Christmas time, and if we're good Americans and good Christians, we will have little plastic babies on the front lawns of city halls, and we are going to go to hell in a handbasket if we don't have them. Do you understand that this, this, this is the mindset that we begin to get into, and it's subtle, it's subtle, and it gets into our thinking, and it begins to be a significant problem. Now, splice that out in the way it could apply in the rest of churches. Well, lastly, and this is the one I'm most concerned about, though, is that we acquiesce in regards to Sabbath, Sabbath keeping. And here I want to go the opposite direction. And that the big issue here is not that um, over-religiosity has infiltrated our churches, but p- pagan secular thinking has infiltrated our churches. Now, in very rare settings, do, do we have an issue of people putting too many rules on us in regards to Sabbath keeping? But what we do have is we have an irreligious perspective. There will be, we lay down and we kneel before the great slave master of the Puritan work ethic in this country. And that we actually violate the very heart of Sabbath keeping in which we have to go to work this afternoon because my performance is the means by which I am acceptable. My hard work is the means by which people approve of me. That if I, I have to, my bank account will not grow unless I go to work today. And what we are driven by in those moments is we are driven by another standard besides Christ Jesus. That I cannot rest, I can't take a Sabbath, because the world would disapprove of me. My boss would think I'm lazy. This is the world pressing in on us and passing judgment on us and calling us lazy and challenging our commitments to the Lord in doing so. These are the ways in which it kind of suddenly gets into our Christianity. All right, so that's bootleg one. The second bootleg is this. Bootleg Christianity substitutes the speculative for the vital. Verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. 
What is displayed here are a series of mystical practices that work together in order to give a Christian a higher spiritual experience. Let me just walk through some of these words because they're big words. They're kind of not the kind of words that we use. First, this kind of spirituality involved asceticism. In brief, asceticism is the belief that if you add up enough physical negatives, you get a spiritual positive. Mere avoidance becomes the pathway to holiness in this thought process. These ascetic practices would mean in those day and ages maybe keeping yourself from foods or certain pleasures or perhaps even inflicting certain pains upon your body. If you, if you ever saw the Da Vinci Code or read the Da Vinci Code, there's a particular, it's a very hyperbolic example of this, but a monk, an Opus Dei monk named Silas who wears a, a, essentially a claw around his leg and beats himself with a whip. But that is an ascetic. He's trying to inflict certain pains upon himself both to deal with his guilt but also to give himself a higher spiritual experience. And Paul says that these kind of things are of no value. In fact, they're destructive. And in some sense, now in some sense, understand this biblical discipline, any biblical discipline is, is a form of asceticism, right? When you fast, now we're not commanded to fast, but there, it is a good thing at times to fast. You're actually, you're keeping something from your body. Any kind of biblical discipline is saying, I'm not going to eat as much, or I'm not going to sleep as much, or whatever it may be. I'm going to withhold myself from something. But biblical discipline is different from asceticism. Asceticism presupposes and sees the physical world as inherently evil. And the more the thought process is, the more we can get outside of the physical world and engage our minds and our bodies in spiritual things, the more enlightened and the better Christians we will become. The body is viewed as evil, and so we do difficult things to the body. And the Bible insists, though, against asceticism that what God has created is good. Sin entered the world, and yes, creation is now fallen, but sunsets are still beautiful. Even in Romans 1, which we reject God from from what we see, but it says that we can still see God in creation. There's a sense in which he still displays himself, even in broken creation. Creation still praises him. And in 1 Timothy 6, 7, it actually commands that we should enjoy creation. So it goes on in 1 Timothy 1, 4, 1 chapter 4, through 1, uh, verses 1 through 5, excuse me. And it says this. Now keep this in mind for Thanksgiving. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later, later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Now what are those teachings? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seers. And here's what they teach. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Asceticism is a lie. It is a lie to say that you can grow spiritually by simply removing certain pleasures from you. Now, I'm not saying there isn't some value in disciplines. There absolutely is value. But they are not the substance of things. In actuality, what we see in 1 Timothy is that it's through the enjoyment of God's creation that we begin to experience the pleasures of all of who God is. That we have a God who, even in a broken world, will still allow for us to experience the enjoyment and the pleasure of marital intimacy. That is a good gift, that he still allows us to enjoy good food, that there are sunsets. In in a redeemed sense that once you come to know Jesus, 
that you can actually experience the pleasure of God and the goodness of God in those things. Not in simply the denial of them. A second, this form of spirituality involved the type of worship of angels. Now, this is very confusing, and commentators aren't really sure what's going on here. Um, but it appears that what's happening is that they are trying to engage with particular angels as intermediaries with God, and also by engaging with these spiritual forces, these angels, as a means of getting certain fresh knowledge of where they should go for food that day, what they should do for work. It's kind of like angelic Ouija boards. That if we can just get, get ourselves in a spiritual place where we can engage with angels, then, then we will know how God wants us to live. And we'll have a great Christian life. The Bible isn't enough in this kind of thinking. Jesus isn't enough. We need something else to have a great spiritual experience. Now what this leads to is it leads third to visions, it says. It says they're going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Now, let me, let, me, let me explain what is going on here because all three of these parts go together. The, the practice was essentially this. If you, could, if you could remove certain pleasures from your life enough, you would either be promised these experiences with angels or if like something like fasting from food, you would actually could bring yourself to a hallucinatory experience. Right? This is what we practice on 12-year-olds at youth camp. We're going to keep you up for 48 hours straight and then we're going to play really pretty music and call you to the aisle. This this is essentially very similar. They were going to bring you to a place of exhaustion in the hopes that emotionally we could then engage with visions, with angels who would give you these visions and these teachings. That in through this experience, they would they would see things that they believe they were given new information. And then what they would do is they would go back to the church and they would say, if you want to have a great spiritual experience, then you gotta do this. Or while I was in this trance, while I was having these visions, what I saw, I'm now you gotta do what I saw. God told me this, and now the whole church has got to do it. Now, this is, this is now this, yeah, I hope this isn't the case here. I hope that the case here, that when we come to you and say, we're going to do this, that we have biblical evidence for doing so. That we're rooting, God has given us all that we need. The word of God is sufficient. And yet, so much of the church doesn't see the word of God as sufficient. Televangelists after televangelists after televangelists, what do they say? I got in the spirits, and the Lord gave me a word. And now you got to listen to me. This is an historical thing that goes on now. This has gone out throughout church history. Many cultic leaders, this is what they do. In fact, there was a, a man named Thomas Munster in the 4th century that during that time there was actually all, all these, you know, these little small kingdoms and the impo- impoverished people, the peasants, rose up against and They collected together and they rose up against uh, these princes and these, uh, these, these small fiefdoms and kingdoms. And Thomas Munster was their leader. And the princes came to them and said in a peace treaty, they said, if you give up Thomas to us so that we can put him to death, then, then we will release, we'll let you all go and we won't do any punishment to you. Well, Munster, in a you know, bold and savvy move of self-preservation, decided that he was going to hear from the Lord. And God gave him a vision in which there would be a great battle against, between the princes and the peasants. And he would, have, he would dodge cannonballs and bullets and they would not be killed, and in fact, they would be victorious. And so the peasants, and in fact, it would, they, they saw that very day as he was sharing this great vision that he had, that a rainbow went in the sky, and they saw that as a great vision from the Lord because it was a rainbow that went on Munster's flags. And so they followed him in the battle, and they were slaughtered. That physically is a representation of what happens to many Christians spiritually. They follow a man or a woman who says that they have heard a special revelation from God, and they go wayward 
following him or her in their teachings. The belief here is that Jesus is not enough. And if you think this is not going on in the church, you're fooling yourself. I mean, there's two great music industries, uh, groups that are, that are developing great stuff. Jesus Culture and Bethel Music, both of whom espouse this exact thing. Go look up Kim Walker Smith on YouTube. It is crazy. Now, they write good music. And some of their songs are great, even theologically accurate. But there is a culture there that says that there are people who hear from God and they have special experiences and therefore they're apostles, they're prophets, and therefore we've got to listen to them. That is a problem. And that is against God's word. And they're saying that Jesus is not enough. And if you really want to grow as a Christian, you do what they say or experience the kind of Christianity that they've experienced. We come to the end. This is the shadows. This is not the vital, though. Verse 19, in not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourishing it together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. The whole problem here with this is that what they're espousing is a headless Christianity. And if you've ever run in, you never engage with folks like this who have given themselves over to the spiritual mysticism, they, they are spiritually headless. They are running to and fro, left and right. You ever seen a chicken with his head cut off? That is how they are moving spiritually. That they have removed themselves from what is true and what is right and what is confirmable and what is objective in Christ Jesus and in his word. And they are calling Christ and his word insufficient for their spiritual life. The call here, though, and we have to come to a close, the call here is to hold on to Christ. Ralph Davis, who's a, who's a pastor I really enjoy listening to, had a friend who was a pastor and a principal of a Christian school in England. And he went out one day and was, was going to ski on the English Channel, which I didn't know you could do that. But he, he was skiing on the English Channel, and he went out there, and, he, and he's had the, all the gear on, and his friend named Steve started to pull him. And, and, and so he began to pull him, but every time he kept releasing the rope, and he wasn't getting up. And so his friend pulled around, and he said, he said to his friend, he said this, do you know what faith is? And his friend thought, yeah, I'm a pastor, I teach the Bible, of course I know what faith is, but I'll humor you. Yeah, tell me, tell me what's faith. And his friend said this, faith is holding on. Don't let go of the rope. This is what Paul is saying here, is you don't need pretend visions, you don't need special days, as lovely as they are, you don't need special foods or a special menu, you don't need special spiritual experiences, you need Christ Jesus and him alone. Because why? Because chapter one, because he is supreme and he is sufficient. He is enough. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you protect your church. We so often, Lord, we mean well and we want well, but the devil is subtle and his temptations are subtle and can use even, even our desires and frustrate our desires and, and, and tempt us to take our eyes off of Jesus. Gracious God, I pray that that would not be the case for us. The Lord, whether it's looking to particular rules of Christianity or for certain holidays or certain ways of thinking or certain spiritual experiences, the Lord, we would look at these things and we'd say, that's, that's lovely and that's, that's great. But what I want is Jesus. May that be the cry of our heart each and every day. May that be the cry of our heart when we're feeling spiritually down and depressed and we're maybe in those moments most tempted to run after these other things. 
Would you instead show yourself as exalted and high and lifted up as the supreme and sufficient Lord and remind us once again to come falling at your feet before the cross? And would you lift us up then? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.